Welcome to the May 6th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today's podcast includes a prospective study suggesting that echolizumab discontinuation based on complement genetics is a reasonable and safe strategy in patients with atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. We will also review a study that provides new insights into resistance mechanisms and immune evasion in T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Finally, we'll look at a research article describing a new disorder associated with variants in the TLR8 gene that is characterized by neutropenia, infections, lymphoproliferation, B-cell defects, and bone marrow failure. Our first research article is entitled, Eculizumab Discontinuation in Children and Adults with Atypical Hemolytic Uremic Syndrome, a Prospective Multicentric Study, by Fadi Fakouri of the Nantes University Hospital in France and co-authors. They report the discontinuation of eculizumab, based on complement genetics, is a reasonable and safe strategy that improves patient management and quality of life, while significantly reducing healthcare costs. Treatment with the complement component C5 inhibitors, eculizumab and ravulizumab, has dramatically improved clinical outcomes for patients with atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. With anti-C5 treatment, the risk of end-stage renal disease for patients with atypical HUS decreases from the 60 to 70% range, down to just 10 to 15%. However, the optimal duration of eculizumab treatment is not known and subject to debate. On one hand, the risk of infections due to complement inhibition, need for repeated infusions, and high cost of treatment have driven interest in determining circumstances under which discontinuation would be safe. On the other hand, concerns about relapse of atypical HUS and the potential for more kidney injury may argue against discontinuation. There are a few small retrospective studies, primarily in adults, suggesting that it is feasible to discontinue eculizumab. However, risk of relapse in these studies appear to be higher among carriers of rare complement gene variants. The present study by Fakori and colleagues is the first to prospectively evaluate eculizumab discontinuation in patients with atypical HUS. This open-label, non-randomized study conducted in 22 pediatric and adult nephrology centers in France, included patients with primary atypical HUS, who in most cases had received at least six months of eculizumab treatment. All patients were screened for variants and complex rearrangements in complement genes. Soluble C5B9, a biomarker of complement activation, was assessed at baseline and throughout the course of the study. The primary analysis included 55 patients, including 19 children who had received eculizumab for a mean duration of 16.5 months. 16% of the patients had more than one atypical HUS episode prior to study enrollment. 43% had required dialysis during the episode that had prompted eculizumab treatment. About half of the patients had rare variants in complement genes, most commonly in membrane cofactor protein, or MCP, followed by complement factor H, or CFH, and complement factor I, or CFI. At eculizumab discontinuation, 30% of patients had CKD stage 3, and 7% had CKD stage 4. CKD stage 5 patients requiring dialysis were excluded from this study. 
The primary endpoint of the study was incidence of atypical HUS relapse within two years of follow-up. Relapse was observed in 13 patients, or 23%, during the follow-up period. There was no difference in risk of relapse between children and adult patients. In multivariable analysis, factors associated with an increased risk of atypical HUS relapse included female gender, with an odds ratio of 4.21, and presence of a rare complement gene variant, with an odds ratio of 16.2. In addition, an increased soluble C5B9 plasma level at the time of eculizumab discontinuation was associated with a high relapse risk, with an odds ratio of 20.96 in a multivariable analysis that excluded presence of a complement gene variant. Notably, risk of relapse was less than 5% in patients with no detected variants, and was actually zero when excluding one patient in this group who was subsequently diagnosed with hereditary ADAM-TS13 deficiency. By contrast, relapse risk was about 50% in patients with pathologic variants in the CFH or MCP genes, the most frequently encountered variants in this study. Eculizumab treatment was restarted in all 13 patients who relapsed. For 11 of these patients, serum creatinine, an estimated glomerular filtration rate, returned to normal as early as three months after restarting eculizumab. The remaining two patients, who had significant residual CKD, did not recover their baseline kidney function after relapse. One of these was a 44-year-old male patient with a pathogenic variant in the MCP gene. He had CKD stage 4 after two previous atypical HUS episodes prior to entry in this eculizumab discontinuation study. Following relapse, the patient progressed to CKD stage 5. He underwent a kidney transplant and did not experience another atypical episode in two years of further follow-up. The second patient was a 56-year-old female with a pathogenic variant in the CFH gene. She had CKD stage 3A at study entry. Her recovery of renal function was suboptimal, which investigators said was possibly due to a delay in restarting eculizumab. Based on the expected cost of eculizumab treatment, the discontinuation strategy for the 55 patients in this study saved an estimated 32 million euros over the course of two years, according to the investigators. In an accompanying commentary, Robert A. Brodsky of Johns Hopkins University said that this study increases confidence in the strategy of discontinuing eculizumab for most patients with atypical HUS who achieve remission, especially if the underlying condition is well-controlled. Although patients carrying germline variants are at greater risk for relapse, a case can be made to offer patients a trial of discontinuation under careful supervision, given that nearly all patients in this study recovered renal function after restarting eculizumab, Brodsky noted in his commentary. The study does have limitations, he added, including the composition of rare variants. Although CFH variants are generally considered the most common, in this study, MCP variants were most common. Moreover, only a few patients in the study had the anti-factor H antibodies that are sometimes associated with atypical HUS, leaving open the question as to whether the overall findings of this study would hold for those patients as well. In addition, the mean follow-up for the study was less than 18 months, while relapses of atypical HUS can occur decades later, suggesting a need for further studies with longer follow-up. Overall, the current study prospectively demonstrates the feasibility and safety of an eculizumab discontinuation in patients with atypical HUS, 
Taken together, the findings suggest that the risk of atypical HUS relapse after discontinuation of eculizumab is driven mainly by the presence or absence of rare complement gene variants. The risk of relapse is low in patients without rare complement gene variants and relatively common in patients with pathologic variants. Even so, the decision to discontinue eculizumab could be discussed individually with patients at higher risk of relapse. Following a shared decision-making model, Fakori and colleagues said in their research article. Next, let's turn to a research article entitled, Single-Cell RNA Sequencing Reveals Developmental Plasticity with Coexisting Oncogenic and Immune Evasion Programs in Early T-Cell Precursor Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia, or ETP-ALL. The article is authored by Praveen Anand of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston and colleagues. T-cell ALL is an aggressive malignancy, primarily affecting children and young adults. While prognosis is generally favorable, about 20% of patients will relapse or become refractory to conventional therapy. Early T-cell precursor ALL, or ETP-ALL, has a unique immunophenotype characterized by the absence of CD4, CD8, and CD1A, and frequent expression of myeloid markers. The notch signaling pathway plays a key role in the pathogenesis of T-cell ALL. The most common mechanism is gain-of-function mutations of notch 1, which are observed in more than half of patients. Gamma-secretase inhibitors target the notch 1 receptor, though this approach has met with limited success in T-cell ALL due to the rapid emergence of resistance to these agents. In their study, Anand and colleagues sought to further characterize the immunophenotype of ETP-ALL and resistance mechanisms in ETP-ALL with activating NOTCH1 mutations. To do this, they used full-length single-cell RNA sequencing of malignant and microenvironmental cells before and after targeted therapy with BMS-906024, a gamma-secretase inhibitor. In the course of their investigations, they identified two distinct stem-like states that differed in cell cycle and oncogenic signaling. One group of cells, described as fast-cycling stem-like leukemia cells, demonstrated notch activation. These cells were effectively eliminated by notch inhibition with BMS-906024. By contrast, they also identified slow-cycling stem-like cells that were notch-independent. Instead, these cells relied on PI3 kinase, PI3K signaling. In previously reported investigations of murine models, PI3K pathway activating mutations were linked to notch inhibitor resistance. Thus, the presence of these slow cycling stem like cells may help explain the poor efficacy of notch inhibition in this disease. Moreover, presence of these two distinct stem like states suggests a potential role for dual targeting of notch and PI3K signaling. To test this hypothesis, they evaluated the effects of the gamma-secretase inhibitor in combination with buparlicib, a PI3K inhibitor, in T-cell ALL cell lines in vitro. This approach effectively inhibited cell growth and blocked the development of gamma-secretase inhibitor-resistant clones. Unexpectedly, Anand and colleagues found that both stem-like states can differentiate into a more mature leukemia state. This state exhibited prominent immune modulatory functions, including high levels of expression of the galactin-9, LGALS9 checkpoint molecule. 
those cells promoted an immunosuppressive leukemia ecosystem marked by a clonal accumulation of dysfunctional CD8-positive T cells. These cells expected hepatitis A virus cellular receptor 2-HAVCR2, also known as T-cell immunoglobulin and mucin domain containing 3, or TIM3, which is the corresponding receptor for LGAL-S9. In a related commentary also published in Blood, Andrew Kraft and Sathish K. R. Patti of the University of Arizona said that these findings collectively provide compelling evidence that NETP-ALL resistance to notch inhibitor therapy occurs due to PI3K pathway activation. Although adding a PI3K inhibitor to a gamma-secretase inhibitor demonstrated in vitro activity, a more comprehensive approach is likely needed due to the number of available pathways that allow resistance. Previous research has shown that gamma-secretase inhibitor-resistant T-cell ALL cells are sensitive to JQ1, a BRD4 inhibitor with a broad spectrum of action that includes mTOR signaling and MYC transcription, Kraft and Potty said in their commentary. Therefore, to prevent resistance, it may be clinically useful to evaluate BRD4 inhibitors alone or combined with a PI3K AKT inhibitor, and possibly also combined with an antibody to block the TIM3 pathway. Overall, this study provides new insights on characterization of ETP ALL cells within their immune microenvironment. The findings of Anand and co-authors suggest the potential for new and more effective treatment approaches for relapsed or refractory ETP ALL that combine targeted therapy and immunotherapy. The final research article is entitled Immunodeficiency and Bone Marrow Failure with Mosaic and Germline TLR8 Gain of Function. This article was provided by Janavi Aluri of the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, and co-authors. Inborn Errors of Immunity, or IEI, refers to a heterogeneous set of genetic disorders characterized by autoimmunity and autoinflammation, infection, bone marrow failure, atopy, and malignancy. Genomic investigations of IEIs have demonstrated a broad spectrum of disease mechanisms that include loss of function and gain of function variants. Most IEIs are linked to germline defects, though postzygotic mutational events leading to somatic mosaicism can also cause disease. As an example, somatic mutation in hematopoietic stem cells can cause autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome. The number of IEIs linked to somatic mosaicism was thought to be relatively low, though one recent study demonstrated mosaic variants in approximately 15% of suspected IEIs without an identified germline variant. Somatic mosaicism is generally overlooked as a cause of IEI, in part due to challenges related to detecting low-frequency variants and with testing of the specific tissue or cell type carrying the variant. In the present research article, Aluri and co-authors describe six unrelated males with clinical manifestations consistent with an IEI-carrying variance of the TLR8 gene. These manifestations included severe infections, neutropenia, humoral immune defects, and bone marrow failure. Investigators identified three different variants in TLR8, an X-linked gene encoding toll-like receptor 8, which is primarily expressed in neutrophils and other myeloid-derived cells. 
This transmembrane protein binds to ssRNA viral intermediates, or byproducts, thereby inducing production of pro-inflammatory cytokines and antiviral type 1 interferons. All variants conferred gain-of-function to TLR8 protein. Notably, five out of the six patients were mosaic for TLR8 variants, including four who had the same mosaic variant. Mosaicism was less than 30% suggesting a dominant mechanism for the clinical phenotype. Variant TLR8 was found in fibroblasts of four of five patients with mosaicism, which suggested that the mutation occurred at an early age of development, according to investigators. All six patients had refractory chronic neutropenia, and three patients underwent allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation. The age of onset for neutropenia ranged from 9 months to 16 years. No patients experienced remission of neutropenia without therapy, suggesting that the inflammatory process behind the disease may be self-perpetuating and not easily controlled. One patient had a refractory idiopathic thrombocytopenia that was diagnosed 11 years before the onset of neutropenia. His idiopathic thrombocytopenia was in a period of remission, yet progressed and required transplantation once he developed neutropenia. Authors of a commentary on this research article said that the gain-of-function variants in TLR8 in these patients underlie a series of surprising immunological and clinical phenotypes that raise multiple questions. One key question is whether the mechanism of neutropenia is intrinsic or extrinsic to the cell. According to commentary authors Jean-Laurent Casanova of Howard Hughes Medical Institute in New York and Bertrand Boisson of Paris University in France, the mechanism could be cell intrinsic because TLR8 is expressed by neutrophils. However, it could also be related to the microenvironment, given the presence of autoantibodies against neutrophils, according to Casanova and Boisson. Mechanisms underlying T cell proliferation and B cell deficiency are likely cell extrinsic, since TLR8 is not expressed by T and B cells and probably involve production of cytokines. Other than type 1 interferons by myeloid cells, they added. Taken together, the findings by Alluri and colleagues provides evidence for a new TLR8-associated IEI characterized by neutropenia, infections, lymphoproliferation, B-cell defects, and bone marrow failure. They propose naming this disorder infiltrate, spelled I-N-F-L-T-R and the number 8, which stands for inflammation, neutropenia, bone marrow failure, and lymphoproliferation caused by TLR8. Through further study, investigators hope to learn more about the functional consequences of TLR8 gain of function in this new disorder, helping to inform evidence-based therapy that could improve long-term outcome. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.